This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit LifeVestResults.com to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, Cardinals family. Thanks for joining our Critical Care Cardiology Series. Today's episode, we'll learn all about RV Shock. We Cardinals love the people's venture call. They want us to learn from our expert, Dr. Ryan Tedford. A special thanks to our fellow investor from Stanford, Dr. Pablo Sanchez, for planning this discussion. Now let's get started and get nerdy. Welcome to another episode of the Cardio Nerds Cardiac Critical Care Series. We've discussed the initial approach and management to cardiogenic shock and specific management of left ventricular shock. Now we move on to the right side. Some call it hashtag the forgotten ventricle. Some call it hashtag the people's ventricle. Regardless, many have difficulty understanding it, and we hope after this phenomenal episode, all cardio nerds will be prepared to manage RV failure. I'm excited to introduce a friend of the program, Dr. Pablo Sanchez. Pablo is a cardio nerds ambassador from Stanford University. He's the chief fellow for the Stanford Cardiology Fellowship and supremely dedicated to teaching. His clinical and research interests lie in critical care, right ventricular dysfunction, and respiratory failure. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, I should say, we have to speak a little bit more about Pablo and his amazing contributions to the CardioNerds platform. So I have to say that as a CardioNerd ambassador, Pablo has made incredible contributions. His original CNCR discussing Fontan hemodynamics and physiology, followed by an incredibly meaningful family perspective with the life and legacy of Jeremy Keck. And together, he's inspired us to launch an in-depth ACHD series, which is ongoing. With his passion for professional diversity and inclusion, as well as health inequities, he became the fit advisor for the Narratives and Cardiology series, which has led to powerful discussions with leaders in the field like Dr. Pam Douglas, Dr. Fidencio Sadania, and Dr. Bob Harrington. And we are proud to say that as a native Venezuelan, Dr. Pablo Sanchez presented the CardioNerds at the Venezuelan Society of Cardiology 2021 Congress to describe how we promote diversity and inclusion via the Narratives and Cardiology series. Pablo, we're so fortunate to have you as part of the CardioNerds family. Welcome to the Critical Care Series. Thank you so much, Dan. Yeah, I am so, so thankful to have jumped on this endeavor with all of you, because although the work that we put into making these episodes is substantial, what we get back, what we learn, the growth that we experience is exponentially more. I am so excited to add yet another episode to the Critical Care Series. And aside from the fact that this topic is near and dear to my heart, and yes, that is pun intended. This episode will be incredibly high yield as it deals with concepts that historically are just less emphasized. And I get the distinct honor of introducing and welcoming Dr. Ryan Tetford. Dr. Tetford is a professor of medicine at the Medical University of South Carolina. He attended medical school at UT Southwestern, followed by training at Johns Hopkins for residency, assistant chief of service, and cardiology and advanced heart failure and transplant fellowships. He joined the faculty at Hopkins in 2011, where he served as the medical director of medical circulatory support and the director of cardiovascular hemodynamics and quickly became associate professor of medicine. In 2017, he was recruited to MUSC as a chief of heart failure and their medical director of heart transplantation. He has a panoply of research and teaching accolades and has been an incredible friend of the cardio nerds. And we're very lucky to have him here today. 
Thank you very much, Pablo. I'm very excited about today's discussion. And, and you know, I never miss an opportunity to collaborate with the cardio nerds. Look forward to today and the entire critical care series. Phenomenal. Well, we're, we're very happy to have you. So everyone, let's take a trip back to the CardioNerds Medical Center CICU, also known as the Shulman Ward. Imagine that you're the fellow on call today. You start making your rounds and you realize that the patients in rooms one, two, and three have a very similar flavor. They all have RV dysfunction and all of them are tenuous. But not to worry, you have all thought through this before and just need a little refresher. And that's where the CardioNerds come in. So let's first all get on the same page and try to define RV dysfunction. Broadly, there is some issue with the RV pumping and or relaxation, that is systolic and or diastolic dysfunction. Regardless of the underlying cause or the context, the RV dysfunction is associated with poor outcomes, so we will definitely be watching these patients very closely. RV failure is the clinical consequence of the RV dysfunction, where the RV is unable to maintain adequate cardiac output despite having an adequate preload. So RV failure falls in the larger category of right-sided failure, which broadly encompasses all the different reasons why the right side may not be functioning well. This could be for myocardial reasons. So when we think of RV failure specifically, valvular issues like a tricuspid pulmonary valve pathology, coronary, so something like an RV infarction, electrical from a variety of arrhythmias, pericardial, like constrictive pericarditis, or even vascular, so pathologies affecting the inferior vena cava or hepatic vein or pulmonary artery, et cetera. Any of these problems may give us the bedside signs and symptoms of right-sided heart failure. So when we go to the bedside in rooms one, two, and three, you may find signs of right-sided congestion like ascites, an enlarged pulsatile liver, and lower extremity edema. The most common cause of RV failure is left ventricular failure, but in isolated right-sided heart failure, you may find clear lung sounds. Echocardiogram and hemodynamics are, of course, essential in informing our approach, but we will delve into that once we go see our patients. So honing in on the myocardial causes of right-sided failure, Dr. Tetford, just before we go see these patients, can you tell us broadly how the RV differs from the LV? Absolutely. Let's really think about two major differences. The first being significant structural differences. In contrast to the ellipsoidal shape of the LV, the right ventricle appears triangular when viewed from the side and crescent-shaped when viewed in cross-section. It is a thin-walled structure, which has much more capacitance than the LV, that is the ability to hold on to more volume. But because it is thin-walled, it is also much more sensitive to changes in afterload, both in the acute and chronic setting. Uh, structurally, it's composed of three different sections. The inlet, uh, which includes the tricuspid valve, the chordae, the papillary muscles, the trabeculated apical myocardium, and the third section is the outlet, including the infundibulum or conus and the pulmonary valve. The toric, uh, torrent guap WASP helical model is one of my favorite models that well describe important muscle fiber differences in the RV versus the LV. There are obliquely oriented muscle fibers in the septum, which are shared with the LV, and contraction of these fibers and associated LV twist contribute to the longitudinal motion of the RV. And this, of course, is the lion's share of RV contractility, and it also means that the right ventricle depends on the left ventricle for a substantial portion of its contractile function. The free wall of the RV, on the other hand, has circumferentially oriented muscle fibers that are less efficient, but are able to compensate for impaired septal function as long as afterload is normal. But I think we'll find many situations, including the cases today, where that is not in fact true. The second uh, major difference is the blood supply. Because the RV is thinner walled, uh, wall tension is usually not as high as in the LV, and so therefore it's not high enough to prevent flow during systole. Therefore, in the right coronary artery, the flow is biphasic. It occurs during systole and diastole. 
Although again, this can change with the development of pulmonary hypertension. So I would say those are the, the major important differences that everybody should know. Thank you so much for reviewing these critical structural blood supply differences that really make the bedrock of our understanding of the RV. So the RV has evolved to receive blood from a low pressure venous system, as you just alluded to, Dr. Tetford, and pump it into yet another system that has low impedance and is very distensible. As such, the RV handles volume loads, which is preload, much better than pressure as afterload. And this underlies how the RV responds to different stressors. So Dr. Tetford, can you briefly explain the concept of RV-PA coupling and why it is so, so important to understanding RV function? Absolutely. Uh, RV-PA coupling is one of my favorite concepts and refers to the interaction of RV contractility, that is the intrinsic ability of the RV myocardium to stiffen, and the afterload imposed on it from the pulmonary circulation, which includes both resistive and pulsatile components of load. RVPA coupling is the most comprehensive description of RV function and therefore the gold standard, and it's traditionally assessed via multi-beat pressure volume relations. Great. Thank you. I think this gives us a nice framework to approach RV dysfunction and eventual failure. When thinking about the etiology for our first three patients, we will ask ourselves the following. Is the primary insult to the RV an issue of one, afterload, two, preload, and or three, contractility? Each of these insults can affect the RV acutely or chronically. So to start, Dr. Tedford, how do you approach the differential in acute right heart failure? Sure. And, and again, we're going to talk here about acute, uh, which will be different from chronic. But in both situations, I, I go back to the concept of RVPA coupling. So we will have high afterload states. And if we were truly talking about only acute right heart failure, polar embolism would be the classic example of a very high afterload state that happens acutely. In terms of acute primary contractile impairments, RV infarction would be certainly the most common. Rarely you can have situations of isolated you know, RV myocarditis. A preload in the acute setting likely is not sufficient to, to cause RV failure, preload changes that is, but we'll find out that's very different in chronic RV failure. Thanks, Dr. Tefford, for that primer. That is incredibly helpful. So now let's go see our patients. So we go to room one, and this is a 40-year-old woman who presented with acute chest discomfort and shortness of breath. Her exam demonstrated a heart rate of 132, blood pressure of 89 over 68, an O2 SAD of 88 on two liters of nasal cannula. Her EKG showed sinus tachycardia, a dominant R wave in V1, late R wave progression with anterior precordial T wave inversions, and an incomplete right bundle branch block. On labs, she had an anion gap of 16, a lactate of 5, a troponin I of 0.3 nanograms per deciliter, and an NT pro BMP of 2000. Bedside echo revealed a moderately dilated RV with a hyperkinetic apex, an akinetic free wall, moderate TR, and an RVSP estimated at 36 millimeters of mercury. Given concern for pulmonary embolisms, she was given one liter of IV fluids, started on heparin and epinephrine drips, and stabilized before being taken for CT chest angiogram. This showed a large burden of multilobular PEs in a dilated RV and was then brought to the CICU. Dr. Tedford, given our framework for understanding RV failure, can you walk us through the acute pathophysiology for this patient and how this has affected her RV now? Sure. And I, I think I should start by saying this is quite a sick patient in the Shulman wards. And obviously someone here who's in cardiogenic shock. In the uh, evaluation of the patient, I liked the touch of the McConnell sign, the hyperkinetic apex, an akinetic free wall. And I think it's probably worth describing three possible theories of why we might see this in an acute uh, pulmonary embolism. And the first actually goes back to what we were discussing before, and that's the shared septal fibers between the RV and the LV 
the tethering of the right ventricular apex to a contracting and often hyperdynamic LV may account for some of the preserved wall motion at the apex. The other possibility is that the right ventricle may assume a more spherical shape to equalize regional wall stress due to that increased afterload. And then thirdly, that there may be more localized ischemia of the RV free wall as a result of that increased wall stress. Or again, going back to that torn glass helical model, the circumferential fibers are really not efficient enough to, to contract against that higher afterload. I think one of the important lessons from this description actually is not to be fooled that the RVSP is not very high. And the reason for that, of course, is because the cardiac output is actually so low. So the afterload is the issue, and it's, a, it's an acute one at that. And we know the RV just does not tolerate acute increases in afterload. So we're going to have to, to do some pretty quick maneuvering here to help this patient. Wow, that's great. And I do love that teaching point that when you have someone with a previously normal RV that has an acute PE, that seeing that not very elevated RVSP does not mean that the patient is in good shape. Thank you for highlighting that. And briefly, though, we have to diverge, though, because team, I'm getting paged that the patient assigned to room two is headed directly to the cath lab from the ER right now. I think Dan's already scrubbed in and ready for him, but let's quickly review the story I got from Eunice, the consult fellow. So this is a 57-year-old man brought in by EMS with two hours of chest and abdominal discomfort associated with diaphoresis and nausea. His exam showed a heart rate of 52, a blood pressure of 88 over 60. He's sat at 98%. An EKG was sinus rhythm with Mobitz type 1 second-degree heart block. There were inferior ST elevations with elevations higher in lead 3 than lead 2, along with tall R waves and anterior ST depressions in leads V1 through 3. His labs are notable for an anion gap of 16, a lactate of 4. His first troponin was negative. Bedside echo demonstrated a diffusely hypokinetic RV with moderate tricuspid regurgitation, an IBC that was small and collapsible, and an LV with preserved DF but moderate inferior wall hypokinesis. He was loaded with dual antiplatelet agents, and an intravenous heparin was started en route to the cath lab with LR running wide open. Beep, beep, beep. Hey team, it's Dan here. This is a little bit magical, but already done with door to balloon time in 10 minutes in the Cardio Nerds Medical Center. As expected from the story, we found a completely occluded proximal RCA with Timmy Zero Flow. We went up with a JR4 guide, wired with a Xi'an Blue coronary guide wire, and unfortunately found low flow after initial ballooning, probably because of significant thrombus burden. Flow improved after aspiration and thrombectomy, which we don't perform routinely, but in this case it made sense, and we placed a 3.5 by 23 millimeter drug eluting stent, post-dilated it to 4.0. Thankfully, we've got Timmy 3 flow to several acute marginals and the distal RCA by the end. Definitely check out the films. Hey, everyone, reviewing the films now. That is an amazing result, Dan. And with a door to balloon time and 10 minutes, you must have had access even before this patient even had chest pain. But we're not out of the woods just yet. Dr. Tetford, can you walk us through this patient's RV physiology and how this differs from the first patient? I'd be happy to. Obviously, very different issues with this patient yet a common theme of RV failure. This patient is a case of, of pure RV contractile dysfunction uh, from ischemia. Afterload here should be completely normal. And in the absence of high right atrial pressure, fluid loading may serve to increase the transpulmonary gradient and improve cardiac output, at least temporarily. And based on your echo assessment, we see that the IV was small and collapsible. So indeed, this may be an initial strategy. We know that the acutely injured RV typically tolerates fluid administration because of its compliant thin-walled structure and its capacitance that accommodates changes in preload, allowing for RV dilatation and, and preservation of stroke volume. 
However, it usually works best just in the short term to temporize cardiac output with hope that the injured RV myocardium recovers, contractility improves, and the right ventricle can generate the necessary transpulmonary gradient to preserve cardiac output. Unfortunately, and, and something we see quite commonly, is, is if fluid loading is excessive, applied over longer duration, or given in the setting of an already elevated central venous pressure, the RV dilatation can be detrimental. It can actually increase pericardial constraint, resulting in a reduced effective distending pressure of the LV, that is less LV preload. It may serve to compress the left ventricle, cause LV diastolic dysfunction, or increase left atrial pressure. And lastly, it could even cause tricuspid regurgitation from poor coaptation of the tricuspid valve leaflets. All of these uh, three issues compromise the heart's ability to generate the transpulmonary gradient necessary to maintain cardiac output. So in this individual, I would consider placement of a pulmonary artery catheter, gentle fluid loading, and I would be quick to move to temporary MCS if they're not improving. Thanks, Dr. Tepford. And I think those teaching points about the pericardial effects on hemodynamics, both in acute and chronic RV failure, specifically in this circumstance of acute RV failure, is worth highlighting. And thank you for doing that for everybody. So we basically have two different acute insults on the RV here, a patient with a pulmonary embolism and a patient with an RV infarction. And both caused RV dysfunction and failure by a different mechanism. Let's take a moment here and turn our attention to patients with chronic RV failure, as many of them end up in our CICUs. Dr. Tetford, how do you approach the differential for a patient suspected of chronic RV failure? Well, as you all stated earlier, the most common cause of right heart failure is left heart failure. So I always keep that in mind and assess for the presence of left heart disease. But similar to before, I really go back and consider the idea of RVPA coupling. So we have several high afterload chronic states that we have to consider. Of course, all the different subgroups of pulmonary hypertension, group one pulmonary arterial hypertension, other precapillary pH to include group three or pH due to lung disease, group four from chronic thromboembolic disease, and group five from a myriad of different conditions, including sarcoid, and then group two, pH due to left heart disease. It is important to note that the RV tolerates chronic and gradual increases in afterload much better than it does in the acute setting. We then also have to consider primary contractile impairments. The one that I think about a lot is arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy. We can also see isolated RV cardiac sarcoid and have transplanted a few patients who have presented with this physiology. And then those who have had prior uh, RV insults like isolated RV myocarditis or RV infarction. Now, I also have to consider high preload states when I'm thinking about chronic RV failure. This can be a result of shunts, either intracardiac or large systemic shunts like AV fistulas, as well as tricuspid regurgitation, either primary or secondary due to RV volume overload. And commonly, none of these actually occur in isolation. Two or three of these issues may be going on. For example, in patients with scleroderma-related pulmonary hypertension, we know the RV has contractile deficits as well as experiencing high afterload. And also the obese HEFPEF phenotype. Again, we know that the RV has contractile deficits as well as a high afterload. Thank you so much, Dr. Tedford. What a really helpful approach to the RV. Again, highlighting the RVPA coupling and how it plays such a critical role in how we assess the stressors that may cause the RV to poop out. So taking it back to our initial framework, as we learned, RV failure may derive from abnormalities of preload, afterload, or contractility. Often in chronic RV failure, several mechanisms are at play simultaneously, as you mentioned, and that is abnormalities in preload, afterload, and contractility become interconnected and combined to conspire against the RV in so many different ways. And so as the RV tries to compensate and respond to the insult, 
it can lead to maladaptive changes in another factor as well as to left ventricular function. Thank you, Dan. Again, in your points here about how complex this physiology is, is what makes me so incredulous that this will be the people's forgotten ventricle. I mean, it's so fascinating just working through all these physiologic kind of entanglements. But with this background, let's just get back to rounding and examine our next patient. So in room three, we have a 65-year-old woman with known pulmonary arterial hypertension who's on ambrosentin and inhaled tuprosina, who's here with worsening shortness of breath and hypotension. Her exam revealed a heart rate of 72, blood pressure of 90 over 60, an O2 of 90% on two liters nasal cannula, with an EKG showing sinus rhythm, right axis deviation, and an RV strain pattern. Bedside echo shows a severely hypertrophied and dilated RV with severe tricuspid regurgitation and an estimated RVSP of 78 millimeters of mercury. There's also diastolic and systolic ventricular septal flattening. Dr. Tetford, it seems here that we have changes that are related with chronic increases in afterload, which are then affecting contractility and preload as well. Can you explain how pulmonary hypertension leads to the chronic picture that we're seeing here? We certainly are seeing this. And as we discussed briefly before, with more gradual increases in afterload, the RV is initially able to compensate through hypertrophy and RV dilatation. Its compliance, though, with this hypertrophy will decline and will actually just start to behave more like the LV, and it becomes less tolerant to volume changes. And in fact, here, the flattened septum in both diastole and systole suggests we have chronic pressure and volume overload. Now, it's important to, to know that in most cases of pulmonary arterial hypertension, intrinsic RV contractility is actually not impaired. If you take autopsy samples from patients with idiopathic pulmonary hypertension and Eisenmager's pulmonary hypertension and looked at the individual ability of those myocytes to contract, they actually have super contractile force generation compared to controls. An exception is an entity like scleroderma, where we do see contractile impairments in addition to increases in afterload. And the latter is also true in patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction, as well as some forms of HEF-PEF. Dr. Tetford, that was very helpful. You spoke a little bit about the interaction between the RV and the LV and kind of that flattened septum in this situation. And so we know it's not just the RV that is affected with RV dysfunction, but also affects the LV as well. Can you explain a little further the concept of ventricular independence and how it fits in with this patient specifically? Sure. There's, there's really a couple of considerations. First is that septal deformation through pressure and volume overload will reduce RV longitudinal contractility and global RV function. And as we said before, this longitudinal motion accounts for the lion's share of ventricular function. Secondly, though, as right atrial pressure and right atrial volumes increase, pericardial pressures rise, and this may lead to pericardial restraint or constraint. If you measure left atrial pressure in this situation, it may have actually gone up due to this pericardial restraint. Although the effective distending pressure of the LV, that is true LV preload, may actually have fallen further and again, further reducing cardiac output. This is a, a complicated issue, the idea of pericardial restraint, but it is a very important one to grasp. Thanks, Dr. Tedford. So we have three patients with different etiologies of RV dysfunction and failure. I'm really wondering what the invasive hemodynamics would reveal for each patient. You know, we already covered some of the basics of invasive hemodynamics in depth with Drs. Nusheen, Riza, and Brian McCauley from the University of Pennsylvania earlier in the series. But let's refocus on the hemodynamics that directly inform us of the right-sided function. I'm going to put a plug out there for all trainees and all cardio nerds out there. 
Dr. Tedford has a review of right heart catheterization in the Journal of Advances in Pulmonary Arterial Hypertension that really, really is super helpful. And so I, I suggest everyone take a look at that and we'll include it in the show notes. But Dr. Tedford, when assessing the RV specifically with invasive hemodynamics, what are some parameters you use for acute and chronic RV failure? Karen, this is a, an important question, and thanks for the shout-out. It really is hard to get the right heart catheterization right, so it's worth taking some time to make sure we're all on the same page about how this should be performed. But the right heart catheterization in this case will really help us understand the etiology and the differences between these three patients. I'm going to be wanting to assess uh, RV preload as well as afterload in addition to left-sided pressures. For LV contributions and RV afterload, I'm looking at the wedge pressure, the pulmonary vascular resistance, and the pulmonary arterial compliance. And then to understand RV compensation, we can look at right atrial pressure, cardiac output, stroke volume, and more specific parameters looking at the RV, like the right atrial pressure to wedge ratio or the pulmonary artery pulsatility index, or PAPI, the latter of which is the ratio of pulmonary artery pulse pressure to right atrial pressure. Stephen Sue, a former colleague of mine, published in the European Journal of Heart Failure a really nice study where he took individual myocytes from heart failure with reduced ejection fraction patients and looked to see when he exposed them to different calcium concentrations and the maximal force generation that those myocytes could generate, how that compared to hemodynamics measured in the cath lab. And he actually found that PAPI correlated best with intrinsic myocardial contractility. So I think that is a nice tool that we have. I do want to say a couple of caveats about PAPI, and one is we have to think a little bit about what determines pulse pressure, and we know from medical school that pulse pressure is determined by two main factors. One is stroke volume, and the other is compliance. Now, uh, this is important because a high or low pulse pressure can be impacted by the compliance of the circulation. And in fact, we know in the setting of left-sided heart failure, as your wedge pressure goes up, your compliance goes down. And so this can impact the PAPI. The other caveat I just want you to remember is that PAPI is very sensitive to the absolute right atrial pressure because it's in the denominator of the equation. So for example, you could have a patient with a right atrial pressure of two and then a very similar patient with a right atrial pressure of four, but the latter patient would actually have a PAPI of half of the first patient. So always consider the PAPI in the context of the right atrial pressure and it's probably only relevant if the right atrial pressure is high. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Tepper. This is all extremely interesting. And we really appreciate those nuances with Pappy and those caveats that you just laid out. So remembering our first patient who presented with high-risk PE and was not looking too robust, to say the least, you know, we have some right heart catheterization data at this point. Blood pressure was 90 over 65 millimeters of mercury, heart rate 103 on epinephrine and oxygen at 90% with four liters of supplementation in nasal cannula form. The right heart cath demonstrated an RA of 16, PA of 45 over 23 with a mean of 30. The wedge was 10, cardiac output 3.0 liters per minute. The PVR was 6.6 wood units and the RA to, to the wedge ratio was 1.6. We went back and forth on performing a right heart cath in the context of PE, but decided that it would be reasonable given the ongoing shock and press requirement. And we really wanted to understand what was going on with the hemodynamics so we could help this patient turn things around. Dr. Tedford, would you comment on the use of right heart catheterization in this setting and how you would interpret these numbers? Sure. Well, you know, first I would say it confirms our clinical suspicion, but after reviewing these numbers, I'm even more concerned. You know, we see a lot of patients with chronic heart failure that have a cardiac output of three liters, so we might get a little bit used to that. But 
If you look at the heart rate here, the stroke volume of this individual is actually quite low. And the right atrial pressure to wedge ratio above one, again, tells us that the RV is in fact quite sick. The elevated pulmonary vascular resistance confirms uh, the etiology here is elevated afterload. And this patient is really in trouble. We're going to need to make an intervention here pretty quickly. Yes, definitely agree that this patient seems sick. And that was very helpful the way you went through their hemodynamics. Let's do the same for room two, where we have the gentleman with acute RV infarction. His blood pressure was 80 over 60 on epinephrine. He was sat at 98% room air. And his right heart cath showed an RA of 15, a PA of 20 over 10 with a mean of 13 milliliters mercury. His wedge was 6. Cardiac output was also 3 liters per minute. His PVR was 2.3 woods units. His RA to wedge ratio was 2.5. And his PAPI was 0.7. Dr. Tedford, how would you interpret these numbers for the patient with the RV infarction? Actually, uh, very similar here. And uh, even though the, the PVR is kind of in the low normal range, it actually may be overestimated because I suspect there's some pericardial restraint here from high radial pressure. And I'm a little surprised, actually, that the wedge pressure was measured as low as 6. The PAPI here is obviously very low. This is a very sick patient that needs immediate support. Last but not least, in room three, we have the patient with an acute on chronic RV failure in the context of known pulmonary arterial hypertension. The patient's blood pressure at the time of the right heart cath was 90 over 60. Saturation was 90% on four liters nasal cannula. And the right heart cath demonstrated an RA pressure of 12, a PA 77 over 22 with a mean of 40, a wedge pressure of 10, a cardiac output of three liters per minute, and a PVR that came to 10 Woods units. The RA to wedge ratio was 1.2. Dr. Teffer, how would you interpret these numbers? Sure. You know, this is uh, more of a chronic picture. The right atrial pressure is high, although it is not, you know, 20 to 25, where I'd be very, very concerned acutely about this patient. The cardiac output is low, although the heart rate is in the normal range, so their stroke volume is, is not as low as some of the patients up in room one and room two. So this is somebody certainly that will need escalation of pH therapy, but I'm maybe not quite as concerned acutely about this individual. Wonderful. Yeah, that's really fascinating how you took us through the interpretation of the hemodynamics for these very, very different cases. It's incredibly nuanced. So now that we have this nuanced interpretation, let's move our attention towards management. The first step in the management of RV dysfunction or failure and shock is to treat any reversible causes. So, of course, we need to treat the PE, for which there are numerous options beyond the scope of this episode, or treat the acute RV infarction with PCI. However, after that, the question becomes how to manage RV failure and prevent that deathly spiral. I tend to think of management strategies in similar buckets as the pathophysiology that affects the RV. In other words, address the preload, address the afterload, and the contractility. Dr. Tefford, can you first walk us through how you would optimize RV preload and afterload in a patient with RV failure? And would you emphasize one over the other with these various RV failure phenotypes? Sure. And it, it does depend, of course, on the presentation. Is this acute or chronic in age or, and, and what is the etiology? So in patient one, a preload is certainly adequate. We would definitely not want to give them any fluids. In fact, we would likely want to diurese them a bit. But the issue, of course, is one of afterload. And we need to lower that afterload. You stated that the patient had stabilized, uh, but this is a very sick patient, and I would consider catheter-directed thrombolysis, assuming the patient's stable enough to acutely lower that afterload and rescue the RV. In patient two, the RV infarct, the right atrial pressure is 15, so it was, in fact, a little bit higher than our echo suggested. And so fluid loading, in all likelihood, will not help, but rather hurt this individual. At this point, I would want to consider temporary mechanical support to, to support them through that peri period and hoping for recovery. And in patient three, with the caveat that I do not treat PAH clinically, 
Additional pH therapy is certainly needed to lower afterload and likely in parental form like IV paprostanol. With the low systemic blood pressure, I had one increase systolic blood pressure to enhance LV and RV contractility. So I would want to consider a low-dose inotrope or vasopressor in this individual. That was great hearing how you thought through each of those three different patients and how you want to specifically address their pathophysiology. We talked there a lot about preload and afterload, but I imagine you'd want to augment contractility, whether in some of these patients or in RV failure patients in general. However, the medications we use to improve contractility, um, usually inotropes like dobutamine or milrinone, have the possibility of worsening ischemia or causing arrhythmias. Therefore, with RV failure, we often try to talk about aiming for optimal loading conditions to minimize doses of vasoactive infusions. Dr. Tetford, when do you start vasoactive medications in patients with RV failure, and which agents do you prefer for the various RV failure phenotypes we've been discussing here, if at all? Absolutely. And, and your point about optimizing preload is an important one. We didn't actually mention that in patient three, yet that patient clearly needs to be diuresis and may respond to that preload reduction. When I'm thinking about addition of inotropes or vasopressors, I want to make sure in these patients, particularly ones with isolated RV failure, that we do not lower systemic vascular resistance. We know that this can impair blood flow to the RV. This can make them even more ischemic. And we, we know as we lower LV afterload, this reduces LV contractility and will therefore reduce RV contractility. So I, I try to use those agents that will not lower SVR. Milrinone and isolated RV function, I find typically has too much peripheral vasodilatation. So I'll use low-dose dobutamine, typically is, is my first agent. Again, assuming this is truly isolated uh, right ventricular failure. This is very helpful. And just we, again, appreciating that medications or agents that impact the SVR can have real consequences in terms of the patient's perfusion to the vital organs. And so taking those things into account when we focus on the RV is just uh, absolutely essential to patient's care. So let's say we tried all the optimization that we just described, but the patient is just not progressing in the way that we want. Dr. Tedford, when do you consider using mechanical circulatory support for isolated right ventricular failure? And how do devices differ and what goes into your decisions to use one over the other? And maybe who do you involve in these discussions as well? Sure. All, all great questions. And I think uh, case number two illustrates this point very well. I would be worried that the use of inotropic agents in this patient will increase oxygen demand and perhaps even worsen the RV ischemia. And I think this would be an appropriate patient where we would elect for early temporary mechanical support. You mentioned the idea of who we involved, and it should be a multidisciplinary team. At MUSC, we do have a shock team that includes our critical care cardiologist in the ICU, our heart failure cardiologist, cardiac surgeon, uh, our nursing staff, as well as our interventional cardiologists. And we'll discuss these cases both in and out of the hospital to come out with the right type of support. You mentioned that there's a lot of different options for RV support. We have the Impello RP device. You know, some of the challenges with that device is the patient uh, typically has to lie flat in bed because it's femoral access. They have to be on systemic anticoagulation and there can be some clotting issues, but it can be helpful. There's the Protect Duo device, which can be put in via the internal jugular vein. The patients can ambulate, uh, but it is a big catheter and we've seen that actually cause some, you know, valvular damage at times. And then of course there's ECMO and you could consider either a VV or VA depending on the clinical scenario. But it really does need to be a multidisciplinary decision, and we need to make sure that we have an out strategy. And these individuals, based on what you've told me, I think all of them, we, we can see the light at the end of the tunnel, so we need to support them to get them to the, either recovery or the next step in therapy. Thanks, Dr. Tefford. That was helpful to go through the different options we have to support the RV from a mechanical circulatory support standpoint. 
Now, we will be addressing biventricular support with Drs. Ann Gage and Megan Burke in a future episode. But Dr. Tepford, you briefly brought up ECMO. So when do you start thinking uh, a patient needs to be upgraded from isolated RV support to biventricular support? Great question. And, and you know, of course, it's is there signs of LV involvement? And, and does the patient start to develop uh, you know, symptoms of pulmonary edema? And that's when the pulmonary artery catheter is critical. I'm following their hemodynamic and their clinical response. I'm watching for pulmonary edema. Your patient and the pulmonary artery catheter will tell you if you need upgrade support. Because of the uh, inferior infarct and some involvement on that second patient of the LV, I would be concerned that isolated uh, RV support may not be adequate. We would just have to closely monitor if we did proceed with that type of support. Lastly, we usually think of RV support as temporary in nature. Are there any durable RVADs that can be used? And what settings are we thinking about using such devices? You know, there are certainly not any durable RVADs that are approved by the FDA for for that use. They can be used in off-label and compassionate cases. We've used them as a bridge to transplantation, for example, someone who either had severe biventricular failure or uh, after a left ventricular cyst device who had persistent RV failure. Thankfully, I think we're much better at patient selection now, and we also have the ability to go straight to transplant in most cases, uh, and so we can avoid those situations. But uh, we still don't have a great option for durable RVADs. Thank you, Dr. Teffer. You've walked us through, you know, the anatomic and embryologic basis for why RV dysfunction, failure, and shock presents the way that it does. Also how to interpret those nuanced hemodynamics that we've all come to know and love and in what situations to apply them. And then the various different modalities for treatments and how to apply those. It is very, very clear how much you love teaching about this, and we're still just riveted by your teaching points. Thank you so much for coming and rounding with us here at the CardioNerd Strollman Ward. We are so, so thankful. To close up the discussion, can you tell us what makes your heart flutter about taking care of critically ill patients in the cardiovascular ICU? Sure. You know, I'm really passionate about understanding hemodynamics and physiology to be able to help patients. And we have lots of different therapies we can offer these individuals. I'm also very fortunate to work with a great team of physicians, APPs, nurses, administrators, and staff at MUSV. I would just like to thank you so much for having me. I would say keep up the tremendous educational efforts that we've all come to know and love from the cardio nerds. Thanks again for the opportunity.